The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! And welcome back to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <gasps> My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, hello. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname, but I am a big fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Good. <laughs> as, as, well, not necessarily. I, I think uh, fandom isn't always the best place to start when it comes uh, to... Talking about or criticizing a piece of media. No, fair enough, but I'm a fan, so I'm allowed to say I I think you're cool. Well, thank you. Uh, Every every episode of the Rocky Horror Picture Show installment of Episode Zero, we look at the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The movies that inspired it, that laid the foundation for it. Uh, We are trying to look at film history through the lens of the most popular parts of it. Uh, we did 20 episodes of Star Wars, we're going to do a whole bunch of episodes of Rocky Horror, and then eventually we'll move on to something else. But right now, we are knee-deep in the world of Rocky Horror, and we wanted to go right back to the beginning of the horror part. The horror part, and also, uh, you might find the cult part. Hmm. Uh, and we'll get to that. That's right, because we're going to be talking about a silent film classic called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Look, we said it was silent. It's a silent movie. There's yeah, we no don't clip. Really have, yeah. We don't have a clip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari uh, was released in 1920, although that's up for dispute. A lot of people don't necessarily... Like, a lot of people have said it came out in 1919. Uh, yeah, some, but, sometimes that kind of... But it, like, yeah. and then it came out later, so uh, its its actual release year was a little bit up for debate. Yeah. The actual production and how it came together has been a little disputed, uh, there's a lot of bizarre mystery surrounding the production of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. However, in to little be, details like that. However, to be fair, uh, mm. a lot of the early history of cinema has a lot of mystery to it as well. Um, films were not fair, considered yeah. um, incredible, important, artistic achievements that needed to be preserved and cataloged mm. the way that they are now. Well, there, there weren't there weren't as many, were there? Uh, well, so, there yeah. weren't as many. It was new. The the, the medium was the, only yeah. a few decades old. The, the resources were also limited. Um, a, a lot of film historians wince when they hear the story of uh, the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yeah, uh, in that uh, they were animated on those transparent cells, and they would uh, you you paint you draw you ink and paint on the cell. You put it over the background uh, and you photograph it from above. Mm-hmm. And then you replace the cells, and then you string all the photographs together, and that's how animation is. Uh, very basically. Yeah. Uh, that's how a lot to, of animation yeah, uh, is. Yeah. In order to save money, the Walt Disney Studio would reuse cells. They would wash the drawings off and draw over them again. Mm-hmm. Sounds efficient if you're trying to save money. Those cells, of course, are uh, incredibly valuable. Mm, priceless They're, works of art. Yeah, these, these are, it, yeah. yeah, the animators actually put these things together, and there was a huge, huge market uh pretty soon thereafter for animation cells and when you hear that the animation cells for snow white and the seven dwarfs are just gone forever because they washed them off and used them again kind of hurts a little bit yeah because they didn't think to keep all those things they needed to save money at the time yeah but snow white and the seven there, was no, actually, there was no posterity involved snow white and the seven dwarfs is actually a good example because um there's also a lot of just general misinformation and mythologizing yeah. that goes on about the early eras of cinema even as late as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that is still largely considered by a lot of people to be the first feature-length animated film, and Disney would really like you to believe that. (laughs) And that is just not true. 
there's actually quite a few silent films uh, in that in that works. So, uh, when was it? Is it ah? Um, uh, is it the tale of Prince Ahmed? That's yes. the oldest. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the oldest of... surviving. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Sorry, you, yeah. that's the oldest surviving feature-length animated film, and that's from 1926. That beats Snow White by almost 15 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. So, and there are others besides that are lost now. So, the idea that you know a release date might actually be in question might seem kind of hard to wrap your head around now, but there was so little concern for the record keeping in some of these instances. A lot of these were considered disposable entertainments. That uh, it's not as surprising as all that, but it is a tragedy, especially when you also add in the fact that a vast amount of the original silent era of cinema is now considered lost, mm. just gone. They yeah. they they don't exist as far as we know. Uh, they were lost, destroyed, melted down to make guitar picks. You know, yeah, tragedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for an archivist, complete and utter tragedy. And yeah, there's there's. Uh, a whole there are volumes been written on films that were lost forever. Some of them do reemerge every once in a while. We get lucky. And, uh, yeah, people are people are working their ass off trying to find these things. The the old uh, uh, parenthetical I used to see whenever I would, and I think this still pops up sometimes mm. when you look up a movie like on IMDb or something like that, and it's like this movie is considered lost. And there's a parenthesis, check your attic. Yeah, <laughs> because that's a, a lot of them are found there. A lot mm. of them are found just like in this, some, some someone's private storage collector case. just yeah. put it in an act and not really knowing what it is. Yeah, uh, from what I understand, like some films are found in unexpected places, like Metropolis, mm. uh, Fitch Lang's film uh, was a lot. Large portions of it were missing just over the course of mm-hmm. the over the years. Uh, big chunks of it like rotted away or they were cut out for various reasons and they just were never found again. And then I think they found some in. Like at one cinema in Brazil, like yeah. no, nobody knew, nobody thought to look in Brazil, like in the basement of this one cinema in Brazil, but they found a lot of this missing footage and they, they spliced it all back in. Yeah. I want to say that the movie Samurai Cop was <laughs> considered lost for a second. Yeah, there are like relatively they, recent films that get lost. And then they, found a, yeah, they yeah. found a print like in a castle in Germany somewhere. So yeah, the, those prints are out there somewhere. There's a, there's a, one of the <sighs> greatest of all films. Uh, actually, The Passion of Joan of Arc by oh, uh, Carl Dreyer. I was, I was going to say Samurai Cop. I already mentioned well, fair that. Fair enough. But uh, the, with the other uh, is uh, really <laughs> absolutely brilliant. It's, a, it's about mm. the trial and ultimate execution of Joan of Arc. Mm. Uh, it is one of the most potent films ever made. Uh, one of the best of all silent films. Certainly. Like, seriously. Uh, but uh, it was considered, I think, basically lost. And then they found it in a Norwegian mental asylum. <laughs> which a i mean cool hmm. but b that's not a great film to show people who are under enormous mental strain that's actually really intense because yeah, it's a it's, frightening film it's, yeah, it's scary it's about persecution yeah, yeah. It's, it's really a scary movie it must have been a horrible hmm. horrible screening no wonder it got locked in an attic they were like we're never showing that again <laughs> just put it in the attic leave it there yeah and uh, and of course uh, the documentary film dawson city frozen time oh, yeah. is about how a lot of lost silent films were found buried under the permafrost in the Yukon yeah. uh, after a long circuit uh, that was making the rounds uh, post-Gold Rush. So, yeah, a lot of these old films were just buried in a the basement swimming pool filled with dirt, and then uh, because it was so cold, the film was largely preserved, and they were able to rescue a lot of these old movies. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, again, came out, Around 1920, it was directed uh, by Robert Vina. Uh, Vina. Ger- Vina, sorry. Oh, Robert Vina. Sorry, I, we literally had a conversation about how to pronounce this, and I already <laughs> screwed it up. Robert Vina, mm-hmm. uh, he uh, was a uh, Jewish filmmaker working in Germany who was actually very prolific. He's now pretty much only known for this movie for the most people, mm-hmm. but he was very prolific. He was working through the 1930s, um, and um, he fled uh, Germany in exile. Uh, because of the rise of Nazi Germany. Uh, And that's pretty important to point out, A, because history, uh, and B, because Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is very much an anti-authoritarian film, Hmm. uh, except for the bullshit ending that got tacked onto it, which we will discuss in great detail. Um, This is considered, some people consider this, that's why I brought this up earlier. Some people consider this the first true horror movie. I think Ebert called it that. Mm. Uh, 
probably not true. Uh, but it is one of the films that we look to that helped codify the horror genre as yeah. we know it. But uh, it also uh, stands out because of the the mystery surrounding a lot of its production and how uh, it, it was another one of those films that sort of its reputation at, at its initial release was difficult to gauge, mm-hmm. but it definitely grew in popularity over time. Might be considered one of the earliest uh, examples of what we now describe as a cult movie. Yeah, uh, th- What we call a cult movie now is a, a relatively recent invention, and I've already talked about the rise of the midnight movie. That is the, uh, the idea that you can take something really wild and show it after hours in movie theaters and gain a cult following that way, which is only about yeah. 50 years old. That yeah. Idea. Like yeah. The, the, the first film that, that really sort of officially had that title was El Topo. And that came out in 1971. Uh, this one, uh, yeah, kind of gained this, uh, following right away. And, and it had an international audience as well. Uh, a lot of the uh, strictures that were being placed on international film distribution uh, just a few years previous were relaxed, and a lot of these German films were now making their way uh, over to the United States and getting an audience over here as well. Mm. Um, Often in a boldlerized fashion, a lot of the intertitles were replaced with sometimes poorly translated English intertitles, um, if you get to see this, see it with the original German intertitles because they're like really stylized and they, they do the text in this big wild way. And the film is very much about insanity. Uh, uh, the director had a couple motivations for telling the story the way he did. The story, by the way, uh, very briefly, uh, I'll t- say what the framing uh, device mm. is. We'll talk it, about it, the framing device in a minute, yeah. It opens with... A young man sitting on a bench, an old man comes over and sits next to him. Oh, we are talking about the yeah, and, Never mind, Well, sorry. just not a minute right now. Uh, and uh, uh, the young man starts to tell the old man a story about how, you know, how he got there. Yeah. And it'll eventually be revealed that, and minor spoilers, that he is actually a patient in, a, in an asylum. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot of, uh, it turns out you were insane all along twists and turns throughout Caligari. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not just right at the very end. It actually happens like a couple of times. That's true. It is. It is <clears throat> not, it's not exact. Okay. So here's the deal. Mm. They wrote a horror movie and the horror movie was actually straightforward and didn't have that framing device. Mm. Um, and that with the framing devices, we'll discuss in great detail. It actually completely changes the overall impact of the film in some ways. Um, but it, and and indeed, it, I think it changed a lot of cinema history because the whole ah, uh, you were actually you were mad all along, and we couldn't trust your perspective, mm. became quite the cliche. Yeah, in yeah. cinema, and and I've I've seen numerous mm. television series that mm. it looks like a single episode with that story, or but, be uh, a lot of movies where mm. it turns out that oh, I was Tyler Durden yeah. all along, that kind right. of thing. Yeah, um, Vina was a soldier in World War One. Uh, went through some therapy after the war because of PTSD and I don't, I don't have any details as to his actual experience, but left his therapy very suspicious of therapists and mm. doctors. Yeah. Evidently he was treated very, very poorly in therapy. Yeah, the early days of psychology <clears throat> were not necessarily good days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, also he, his father, from what I understand also had a very bad experience, uh, was, uh, a famous actor who became too mentally infirm to act after a while. So that also played into the themes of, of madness mm. in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Um, so, so he, he did have a lot of personal stake in this story. True. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> this was uh, considered uh, uh, by the filmmakers to be something of an art house film. Mm-hmm. Um, the producers saw it as a cheap horror movie that they could make because Grand Guignol Theater was very popular at the time. Whitney, mm. what is Grand Guignol Theater? Uh, Grand Guignol Theater was, uh, oh golly, the, the tradition goes back to France, Grand Guignol, French words, uh, of a very specific type of horror, uh, French horror theater, like underground French horror theater. And we're talking live theater. Just so yeah, clear, li- yeah, that is, yeah, live theater plays, which uh, featured a lot of very salacious and incredibly violent uh, content. Mm-hmm. Uh Remember, the, remember is, the play that Pugsley and Wednesday perform in the Addams Family movie? Kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, just the the point was blood. The blood is compulsory. And uh, 
very famously, they would, would go down into these uh, basement room, rooms and they would spill blood out onto the audience. Not effects blood. They got the real thing. Oh, God. Like from butcher shops and stuff. But yeah. Still think that's probably a, a really good way to spread disease. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to... to shock people for art. Uh, that's how it was viewed anyway. And yeah. Grand Guignol uh, translates to essentially large puppets. And the idea is human beings are but puppets on the stage for your slaughter. So they are just meat to be ripped apart. Right. Um, and that term Grand Guignol tends to, uh, critics now use it to describe anything that's extreme, extremely bloody and only exists to shock and horrify. Mm. It's really, really interesting. Read up on Grand Guignol Theater. Yeah. Uh, and that keys into the way that Dr. Caligari was filmed. Dr. Caligari is considered one of the seminal and defining films of German Expressionism. Mm. Uh, German Expressionism is kind of what it sounds like. It started in Germany. And it is a mm. manner of filmmaking that focuses on how things feel, how things are expressed, and not how they literally are. Yeah. We're not just photographing reality we're actually creating, you know, much like, you know, uh, Monet mm. was uh, using color in unusual ways in order to express feelings as opposed to simply, well, that's red. Yeah, so I'll use red. There you go. I'll put some blue in there. Make you feel <laughs> weird. Like, I'm no artist. Uh, but uh, German Expressionism was and typically uh, uh, used to very shocking effect. Uh, there were a lot of arch angles, a lot of uh, sets that were uh, painted on or constructed in such a way that they couldn't exist in real life. There's a chair in this movie that I, I found incredibly distracting this time that I watched it. There's one guy who has like, just it's his small apartment. He's got a bed. He's got a desk. He's got one chair. You know, he's 1920s. He's poor. And his chair. Okay, so you know how a chair, like there's the seat. And then there's like two prongs on the back. And then there's like one like line of wood on the back for you mm. to like sit back on. Okay. He's got like five of those slats of wood with like a couple of inches between them. Like, I know that sounds like a normal chair. You look at this thing and it looks absurd. Yeah. Well, it's I'm... way too tall. Like it makes no sense. It's just mm. there to give you an impression of, well, this is not the real world. This yeah. is a world in which things are not well, as they seem. And also there's a, a scene early on uh, where Dr. Caligari goes to um, the local uh, bureaucracy mm. uh, to look for a permit so he can perform. Mm. And the stool that the bureaucrat is sitting at isn't a human stool. It's this big, long, precarious thing mm -hmm. where he's and it, like it looks like he's about to topple off and the desk is equally high. He's, he's perching there, and, and he's wearing all black, so he looks like a crow almost. Um, that's the way reality looks in mm -hmm. Caligari. Um, yeah, that's that's when we look at authority, we yeah. see that kind of, yeah. well, uh, kind of bullshit and that kind of intimidation. Uh, speaking of authority, a lot of the uh, writing about Caligari has been uh, in direct relation to Nazi Germany. Yeah. Uh, and not just Nazi Germany, but a tendency, and this was a, a criticism on Vina's part, of the at the time he was concerned that a lot of german people were uh where fascism was kind of inevitable mm -hmm. that there were these uh wicked figures who were very willing to exploit uh weaknesses and madness and uh manipulate the people for their own means yeah and that uh the german people were asleep mm -hmm. and were going to be easily led yeah. yeah uh so the the common uh interpretation is that dr caligari is the fascist mm -hmm. and uh the german people are cesar the somnambulist we haven't really talked about the plot no. by the way just for the main plot yeah. we talked about the framing device i thought we we're going to talk about that second so right. i got a little turned around the main plot and i want to get back to that point because that's really important mm -hmm. uh the main plot of the story is there's a carnival in a small german town and one of the attractions at this carnival is Dr. Caligari, who's a hypnotist, basically. And he claims that he has a sleepwalker, someone who's uh, in a coma, that he can wake from the coma, and then that person yeah. could see the future or tell your yeah. fortune, and then fuck off back into his coffin. And then every night, someone in town gets murdered by that sleepwalker, and the people in town are starting to freak out about it. That's the yeah. horror. 
Um, a, a somnambulist, by the way, was not an uncommon entertainment at the time. A, there were a lot of unusual sort of sideshow and circus entertainments. Uh, I know this because of Ricky Jay, uh, who uh, did things like starve. Yeah. People who starve for themselves for entertainment and you pay money and you just go in and watch them not eat. Uh, the people who could reach into their pockets and extract just about anything that you asked for. I want a ticket to a ball game and they just have it. And one of those things was somnambulists. Yeah. People who slept all the time. You go in and you watch them sleep. Yeah. Entertainment options were a little limited at the time. Well, there was a, there was more of a market for everything, I guess is my point. It was a little less spectacular. And I think it was a little bit more conceptual. How mm. odd that we meet this being that sleeps all the time. So the idea of showing off a sleepwalker is not so out of the realm as it sounds. Yeah. But because, Nowadays it might seem weird, but at yeah, the time it yeah. wasn't like the weirdest thing in the world to at least conceptualize. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a murder mystery and uh, people are trying to figure out who is doing it. We, the audience, know who it is pretty quickly. Um, but going back to the idea that this is, I mean, obviously Nazi Germany hadn't risen yet, but for some people, the writing did seem to be on the wall already. Um, and this is one of those fascinating places where reality and fiction kind of become in, in hopelessly intertwined. Uh, a lot of the people I already mentioned, uh, director Robert Vina, uh, fled Nazi Germany as a result of this film, Conrad Veidt. Uh, who starred in this film. He starred in The Man Who Laughs, one of the other great uh, mm -hmm. influential horror movies. I uh, would go on to co-star in Casablanca. He fled Nazi Germany. Uh, you know who didn't flee Nazi Germany? <laughs> Werner Krauss. He plays uh, Dr. Caligari. The guy who played Dr. Caligari, and the symbol of horrifying and, uh, and uh, uh, cruel authoritarianism. And... Uh he actually made a tidy profit in Nazi Germany. Making propaganda films. M making, uh, well, they were genre films wow. that were selling propaganda where he played uh, an evil Jewish villain yeah. uh, to sell this idea that the, the Jewish people are villains in German culture. Yeah, but he was, he was, uh, he was a sympathizer. He didn't leave. Uh, and um, the idea that the main villain in the film is the prominent member of the cast who didn't flee Nazi Germany is... Um, Weird. It, 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 it does certainly shore up that criticism that he represents the rise of fascism in Germany. Yeah. Um, Dr. Caligari is actually not a terribly complicated storyline. We can't, it's, you know, we, you can mm. pick, we could detail it for you and we will a little bit, but it's not full of a million twists and turns. It's yeah, mostly just this incredible, overwhelming sense of being transported into a nightmare yeah. that is... Still incredibly potent to this day. We've seen a lot of filmmakers be inspired by this. Tim Burton, obviously. Yeah, Tim Burton, one hundred percent. I think he was even talking about remaking this for a while. Uh, there's there's been like a, a little bit of buzz of remaking yeah. Doctor Caligari, but it never really came. I guess there have been a few Caligari. There've been uh, there've been a few rehashes uh, throughout. Yeah, uh, I think there is a film just called Caligari. Mm -hmm. um, if you've seen the music video for Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl, oh, there you go. That's it, it's just clips from this movie. Like re recreated with mm. Rob Zombie, but yeah. Uh, there was another film apparently called The Captain of Dr. Caligari in 1962, but it has almost nothing to do with it. It's just a title. Just, uh, just yeah. took the title. It's, I like, think it's I, like that name only remake of Carnival of Souls, which takes place like at a carnival with like killer clowns or something. Oh, I saw that, that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with um, not Larry David, Larry, not Larry Drake. <laughs> no, um, Larry Niven. No, no the, that's not right. The, the dad from 10 Things I Hate About You. He, he oh, was, Larry Miller. Larry Miller. Oh, okay. Larry Miller is the villain in that Carnival of Souls remake. Uh, let's see what we got here. There was uh, there was a semi there's a semi sequel released in 1989, um, and uh, yeah, and then there was uh, there was actually an independent remake in like the 2000s. Um, but uh, yeah, it's but Not, none of those got a lot of cultural. No, traction. They, they weren't huge major mm. remakes, the kind that you would imagine. It is kind of weird. Hmm. That no one's ever just done it. Especially considering it's in public domain now. Yeah. Like, to do a big movie. I mean, it wouldn't be that expensive mm. now. But, like, you know, a, a big budget, all-star, you know, a major yeah. release kind of thing. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that doesn't happen with silent films more often. Like, uh, where where's the modern... I guess... They get remade and then they get remade. The remakes sort of take on a life of their own and mm -hmm. then people remake those remakes. Yeah, like Wizard of Oz. W Wizard of Oz, Waxwork yeah. uh, became like House of Wax, which became House of Wax with Paris Hilton. 
Uh, well, the Mystery of the Wax Museum was originally in, it was like 1931. That was a silent film. Oh, okay. I don't think that was a, I don't think that was adapted from a silent film. I think, okay. the, I think the original was actually sound, but your point's been made. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is because when we do remakes, people mm-hmm. make remakes sometimes for the art of it, but usually, usually for name recognition. Well, yeah, usually, yeah. You, again, movies cost a lot of money, even the cheap ones. And so if you're going to bother remaking something and acquiring the rights to it or mm-hmm. just remaking something that's old, you do it because you think it will gain you attention. Yeah. So, again, most silent films are lost. A lot of the silent films that do exist are considered pretty obscure by mainstream audiences who don't watch them very often. Mm -hmm. So there's probably only a handful of silent movies that if you remade them would get a lot of buzz anyway. Although admittedly Caligari would be one of them. I mean, Nosferatu did very well. Shadow of Vampire uh, was an Academy Award nominated film. I don't think it won best makeup should have. Um, But uh, yeah, I know it just seems like this one's just so, so obvious. Yeah, like you'd yeah, think yeah. someone would have done it by now. I, I did especially considering the, you know yeah. the whole authoritarian streak yeah. would make a lot of sense right now. I did get to see Caligari on the big screen uh, with a live music mixed Ooh. by a live DJ, um, and they mixed in like uh, sound effects and interesting music. Um, yeah, it was it was an okay production. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you can find this, try to find the remastered version. You can oh, yeah. you can watch There's it. A on, lot of really fuzzy. Yeah, you can watch it on there. on Tubi and on and even on Amazon. But it's like yeah, like a fuzzy unremastered version. Yeah, if you can find and a remastered uh, version, that's the way to go. It's, it makes all the difference in the world. It re- like you can actually see stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, and I think all the tinting is in place. They restored the, yeah. the intertitles. Yeah, people people have this idea, I think, and I used to think this too, and then mm. I, I learned more, uh, that silent film was A, supposed to be silent, mm. and B, was always in black and white. Lies. Oh, yeah. Total lies. They figured out how to tint the, you know, the actual like individual coloring of things that happened like naturally and chemically. That came later, but tinting of screens was common very early on mm. in the process. And there was rudimentary color photography as well, but True. there was, yeah, also coloring directly onto the film frames. Mm-hmm. That would happen too. A mm. lot of those, a lot of that tinting would sometimes become lost because the color itself would, would fade. Um, or uh, there would also be, and again, there wasn't any sound synchronized with the action, but they were supposed to be played with music. And often, yeah, there would be people doing sound effects or other forms of sonic mm. accompaniment. Mm. In order well, to highlight the experience, it's just those and, wouldn't be and uniform. Of, and a lot of these were like big budget studio films. They had live orchestras that could mm. they could play at like premieres and stuff. Yeah, sometimes. And they. then uh, similar scores that they would hand to house musicians at movie theaters. There was always a guy yeah. up at the front. Often they didn't get music. They mm. just sort of improvise as they went. Yep. And uh, to this day, I think there are still a few people who are skilled at that, at playing musical accompaniment to uh, to silent films. Hell of a skill. Yeah, I also got to see Nosferatu, and uh, it was the musician had a synth, and they played mostly piano. Mm. But whenever the vampire appeared on screen, they switched into this like ultra John Carpenter nineteen eighties synth sound. <laughs> it That's was awesome. Awesome. That's it was awesome. So cool. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So uh, again, the plot of it's real simple. It's two dudes. They're both in love with the same girl. Now they go to a, they go to a carnival together. And they go to see the somnambulist, and the guy uh, says, uh, "This somnambulist, Cesare, uh, Cesare will answer any question." And one I, of the I think dudes, it's Cesar, but I think uh, it's Cesare. Uh, well, I mean, they never say it out loud; it's silent. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Cesare because that's what I heard. You can say Cesar, and All that right. way, at least one of us is probably right. All right. Um, yeah. So this somnambulist will answer mm. any question, and one of the dudes stands up and says, "When am I going to die?" Which is a choice. You're going to get any question answered and you're just going to go for the really dark one? All right. I would have asked like... Wouldn't you ask? What would you ask? If I had only one question and I actually thought it was going to get answered correctly? Mm. Jesus. Yeah, so you'd want to skip... You'd skip straight to like the deep philosophical stuff, No, actually, no. I've I've watched... No, I've watched enough uh, uh, movies, seen enough short stories. Mm. That's the shit that gets you in trouble. You got to think small. (laughs) You got to think small. You got to think modest. Like, hey... What should I have for dinner tonight? (laughs) No, that's that's no, that's just absurd. Right. But I would think something like, um, I don't know, I, I, this doesn't apply to me, but something along the lines of like, hey, you know, I never asked that girl out like a year ago. Should I look her up? Mm-hmm. And the Cesare would say, no, she's not that into you. And it'd be like, thank you. And it'd be really useful <laughs> advice. And then I don't have to think about it anymore. I'd, I'd ask for like, 
who really shot JFK? Like some mystery, maybe if they know. No. Um, this was actually yeah. used as a great plot point in the Alfred Hitchcock film, The 39 Steps, ah. um, which is one of the great thrillers, and it ends on a really great version of that storyline okay. we were just uh, discussing. Um, but uh, and the, but here's the deal. The guy asks, when am I going to die? And the somnambulist says, tonight, <laughs> which is a really creepy thing to say. <laughs> And uh, sure enough, the the somnambulist breaks into that guy's house tonight and kills the dude. Stabs him with a way too long knife. There's no reason to have a knife that long. That's a, that's that's not. We don't, it's not uh, a sword either. It's just a fucking weird knife. And we don't see the knife going into flesh. Like yeah. I didn't wrap a shirt in a like a, wrap a watermelon in a shirt and then stab it. That that wouldn't come till later. But. It's pretty explicit. We actually do yeah. get to see in silhouette the knife entering the guy's body. Yeah, it's very dark. And yeah. uh, that that's that was way more violent than you were you would usually mm. see in a lot of films yeah. at this time. Uh, meanwhile, Caligari has also uh, been killing the bureaucracy, the people who are like preventing him from getting permits to do his somnambulist mm. show. And uh, now all of a sudden, there's a serial killer in town, and everyone is freaking out, and the cops are out in force. And they catch the guy, but they don't catch Caligari. They catch some other guy who admitted I was going to kill someone and frame the real and like and everyone would think the other killer did it, and then I would have gotten away with it, which is just sort of again using the evils of the world to forgive your own evil. Everyone yeah. else is evil. Why can't I? And then I'll just get away with it because this is becoming the norm. Everyone's killing everyone now, which is dark. Um, eventually they do figure out that it might be this somnambulist because someone says, Hey, remember when that guy like asked, asked the sleepwalker <laughs> if he was going to die and the guy sleepwalker said tonight and then he died tonight. That's either a clue or one hell of a coincidence. Either way, we should interview that guy. And so they do. And they actually like stay up all night watching the sleepwalker sleep. And only then, only later do they realize it was a dummy. They replaced him with a dummy. So they were just watching like just a mannequin in a, in a box while, while Cesare was out kidnapping and trying to kill people. And, and that's, that's nightmare stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, and it, like I was watching him. He was there that whole time. No, no, it turns out he wasn't there. But I saw him. No, he wasn't Your there. Your eyes deceived yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Cesare, Cesare. Whatever. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Desiree. <laughs> yeah, that's how it, that's how it was introduced yeah. to me. That's I, I might be wrong. Uh, ends up going after some more people. Uh, they they figure out mm. that somebody was trying to commit a murder and they uh, they apprehended him, but he wasn't the one who did it. And Cesar is able to continue his reign of terror and ends up going after the uh, the beloved young lady. Mm -hmm. In I in I think it's the scariest scene in the movie, but there's a lot going on where he kind of like walks up to the window and this is another nightmare image just sort right. of like grabs the frame of the window and lifts it out and it's just a simple wooden prop he's just like mm -hmm. taking off a piece of the set but basically he's warping reality yeah, he had a exactly. sense that that was real that is not real yeah. reality doesn't work when terror is involved and it's it's one of those things that i think a lot of american films haven't been able to get right and yeah. that is uh growing a sense of terror in a single still shot while one figure moves very slowly through the frame. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll watch a lot of American films and there's a lot of boo-gotcha sort of moments. Things yeah. will enter very suddenly or something will spin around. It'll be a little bit of a startle moment. There's no startle moments in Caligari. No, no, uh, it's, all, it's all looming. Yeah, and so yeah. he moves very slowly through the frame. It's really, really terrifying. Looks down at his potential victim and has second thoughts for just a minute. And then she wakes up and then his face turned like he gets brainwashed all of a sudden. Like all of the humanity is just gone and he commits the murder. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, he doesn't kill her. He kidnaps or, her. Or, or that's right. He kidnaps her and just yeah. grabs her. But just Conrad Veidt's performance in that moment is just so sublime. Mm -hmm. um, to, to that point, you were mm -hmm. talking about uh, American films with sort of that looming. Uh -huh. um, there are a few notable exceptions to that. I think that's one of the reasons why the movie It Follows works so exactly. well. Exactly. Uh, but also some of the classics. Uh, there's a great uh, scene in the original Frankenstein. Hmm. where uh, the future Mrs. Frankenstein is just in the foreground and she doesn't see the monster walking behind her. And yeah. it's just... We, or, or Scream. J James Whale saw Caligari, yeah. Yeah. for sure. Uh, scream, behind you, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> behind you. Yeah. Like, we know, we know. And it's so... 
simple. It's just one shot. There's no, there's nothing complicating it. There's nothing making it unusual. What I thought you were going to say, and this is something that I love Caligari for, and I love uh, for its mm. legacy, is that horror doesn't have to make sense. It's good if it has its own internal logic, but it but, does. But if hmm. where fear is involved and where uh, true horror is involved, uh, to break the rules of what we expect of reality, if done well, uh-huh. uh, can be truly terrifying. And some of my favorite horror movies in the world, again, they they don't always make literal sense. They work mm-hmm. in a very expressionistic way. Yeah. Uh, so the idea that this movie breaks itself. There's this amazing shot when Cal when not Calgar when. Uh, uh, the somnambulist I'll just call him that And we'll avoid the controversy um, <laughs> He's carrying uh, The The the, the his, his Kidnapping his, victim He's kidnapping yeah. victim away And He walks And he, and again The backgrounds in this movie This is a very painted film It's all done in Sound stages A mm. lot of the backgrounds Are literally painted on Like the shadows Are painted onto this thing Yeah Just to make sure It has the exact right aesthetic Also It was cheap Uh where he's walking and you see in the background and there's like just these like oddly tilted buildings mm. and he walks into them. It's like he's walking into the painting, but the geography makes no sense whatsoever mm. at all. Yeah. Like he goes like right like from a hill to walking up like the side of a building and now he's on top of it. And then I well, think and, he can just jump off. Like he's fleeing and he walks up to like the edge of a roof and then there's a hard cut and he's in a different place. It's yeah. just sort of teleporting around. Yeah. Again, and that, that's not continuity errors. I'm sure that was very deliberate. Oh yeah. They knew what they were doing. They were trying to freak you the fuck out. And when they finally find out that, okay, the somnambulist did this, we killed the somnambulist, and now we've got to get that Caligari guy. What the hell was his deal? And Caligari flees. Hmm. He flees town, and they chase after him. And Caligari runs into a mental asylum. And you're like, oh, okay, I see, I see what we're doing here. Okay, cool. <laughs> and then uh, he, the, their hero runs into the mental asylum and says, we've seen this guy. This, this guy's out there killing everybody. And he finally runs into one of the orderlies who says, yeah, that's the guy who runs this asylum. <laughs> and it turns out that the guy who runs the asylum has become so obsessed with insanity and murder that he decided to do it for himself. And so he became obsessed with this old story. Well, and yeah, and then we see yeah. a flat, like we see, uh, and that's the big twist. It's yeah. like, no, it turns out he runs the asylum. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. And that could, that could have been the end. Yeah. Uh, but then we have a flashback and we essentially get Caligari's origin story mm-hmm. where he was uh, reading a bunch of old tomes yeah, about this mad villain and became so obsessed with him that he kind of had this uh, breakout moment in this really bizarre uh, sequence where he decides he needs to become Caligari. Oh, yeah. And, and like we the see l- the words Caligari float through the air around oh, him as cool he goes bit. insane. Yeah, That's a cool, cool bit. So uh, when an actual like mm-hmm. uh, somnambulist like wanders into, you know, the, the becomes part of the, his, his work he comes mm. into the asylum. He's like, I, this is my chance. This is exactly what I've been fantasizing about this whole time. I'm going to use this guy to kill. I'm mm. going to contribute. I'm going to basically hypnotize someone into committing murders for me. And it will be awesome. <laughs> and then he does it. Yeah. And it ends with Caligari. Uh, being committed turns out that the people who claimed to have all the authority the people who claimed to be the most sane in the world are actually in the view of this film the most insane of all what a, i mean it's dark and it's a little it's it's sad but what a powerful message mm-hmm. then the twist <laughs> And we cut back to our hero and he's on the bench and he's finished telling a story like in Forrest Gump. Oh, I bet Robert Zemeckis saw this. <laughs> you know, Forrest Gump could afford to be a little bit more like Caligari. I think that's fair. Uh, but uh, yeah, from, he, from then on, I was, you will die at midnight. <laughs> Mom always said life was like a coffin. <laughs> um, but uh, we cut back to the to the bench and the guy says, yes. And Caligari has been a, mem- a part of the institution ever since. And the guy's like, that's great. Mm. And then he walks off and he sees the, the female lead. Mm. And she she thinks she's royalty. She's completely mm. uh, 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 delusional. And then we run into like Cesare, who's just like hanging out there, just playing with the flower, totally benign. And then we find out Caligari actually does run this place. But he's become the focus of this guy's bizarre fantasy about why authority is bad. Yeah. 
And now he's like, I know how to cure him now. Happy ending, happy ending, happy ending, happy ending. Nobody questioned this. Well, an an iris out on his face. And it is all very looming and scary. Yeah. Uh, They say that the ending was tacked on. I think it works great. It works in context, but it does Uh, change the meaning, I think. A a little bit, but I think those themes of not being able to trust those in authority is certainly still baked into it. Again, I think it would sell better the other way, though, because if you say at the end that the authority that we couldn't trust mm. uh, was it's, actually it's totally st- trustworthy and actually had our best interest at heart and mm. our not trusting them was our delusion and not theirs, um, I think that's a very different message. We still get the but majority he, of the movie, but again, yeah. I think it's like it's like at the end of Fight Club where you say I, that, I, like, I, you know, oh, Tyler yeah. Durden was bad. Okay, um... I, I saw know, it as as the the untrustworthy. That's, that's a bad metaphor. I shouldn't yeah. have brought that up. That doesn't make sense. I, I think the the untrustworthy authority is still an untrustworthy authority. He's not seen as a good guy anymore. Uh, just that it's it's so insidious that it's essentially erased our ability to make sense of the world anymore, mm-hmm. and it's it's made us mad. Um, yeah, which is why I say I think I think it thematically connects to the way the narrative is built. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think it has ultimately the same theme. And again, that Fight Club metaphor. It's late, and that was not actually a good metaphor. <laughs> That's actually the opposite yeah. of what it meant. Um, I don't know what movie I was thinking of, actually, but I'm just going to move on and uh, just eat some crow. Um, but uh, regardless, it does come again. The the message of the film comes across. The twist would was probably a pretty big twist at the time. Twist cinema was not much of a thing yet. Yeah. Um, it's been argued that this is the first twist ending of a film. Uh, whenever someone says this was the first anything, question it. <laughs> Don't know how true that is, but it's been said. Especially when it comes to movies. Yeah, and especially from this era where things were not necessarily cataloged mm. very well. So hard to say. But uh, this probably would have hit people really yeah. hard. Um, the the criticism about this movie, uh, you and I are often talking about how uh, every film is political. Yeah. And every film rises from the political space in which it was created and yeah. reflects upon it. Yeah, we're either, we're either the, questioning it or we're yeah, accepting the, it and saying it doesn't need to be discussed. The, the attitudes and the politics within every movie uh, are need to be are of paramount importance and need to be discussed. Yeah. Uh, that notion that all films are uh, political criticisms is something that was really popularized when Caligari came out. This mm. came out, uh, there, there's a school of critics and I, I wish I could remember their names right now. Um, from Weimar Germany who started to write criticism about how a lot of the films of these, t- uh, that were coming out at this time were actually very concerning because they were very much about brave heroes taking on villains that were lurking in the shadows and how unwittingly they were selling this narrative of the German national character is under threat from a minority and how a lot of these films were being used to kind of unwittingly sell a fascist narrative. Mm. And I think that's significant because a lot of these things are being said today about things like things like superhero cinema. We will be okay if these brave heroes will come out and save us, which puts us in a state of mind to trust people who put themselves in a heroic position. And that's actually a good way to allow a fascist in. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily normalize this area, this kind of heroism. And I think a lot of that was going on uh, in in Caligari. It's fascinating how easy it is Mm. to draw these very clear lines between Mm. popular art, especially popular art, uh, and the overall uh, social acceptability of various uh, schools of thought, positive or negative. Yeah. Uh, how easy it is to see that historically and how absolutely unwilling so many people are to consider it today. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I grant you, sometimes it can be a little, you know, it might be a little difficult to say, like, is this really having that much of an impact? But the concern is that it might, and it doesn't mean you can't make any movie. It means you should be concerned about making movies ethically. Yeah. That's something that I think is what it boils down to, is that you need to be concerned when you make a movie that your movie mm-hmm. is not putting a horrible message out. That doesn't yeah. mean you can't tell a story about just about anything, but it means that no, there are I... ways to do it that propagate 
hmm. ideas that can be yeah, film, influential yeah. and maybe insidious. I think filmmakers uh, would do well in light of what we're talking about to perhaps be critics of their own work yeah, and, tr- and try to look at at it from every angle and see if there's something they're putting into their film that is going a little bit beyond what they might think. Take a you know, take a step back and sort of take a look at some of this stuff. I mention all of this, A, because it's fascinating, yeah. uh, B, it's very important uh, in the history of our chosen medium, uh, but I think this is also where it links up with Rocky Horror in a little bit. Um, mm. Rocky Horror has that same kind of political underpinning of following the caprices of a madman. Mm. And that the one who is in charge now in, in Caligari is a symbol for fascism in Rocky Horror Picture Show. They kind of put that on ear a little bit because yeah. Frank does not represent fascism. No. He represents kind of the opposite. He is a hedonist, mm. but he is also playing that role of the madman who is driving everyone else to uh, madness and darkness. Yeah. But what Rocky Horror is arguing is madness and darkness is fun because it's actually you know <laughs> taking a dump on the entire previous generation that said this stuff is is wicked and they were saying no no this is actually well, a party. well look at look at look how rocky horror treats its mm. actual authority figures mm. we have we have two basically we have the criminologist yeah who like is charles gray and... who is he doesn't really interact with anything but he's kind of inconsequential and in his overall tone of like we discussed last time hygiene film mm. kind of authority is again not really something we're too concerned about and he's going to spend more time talking about the time warp than anything else and then there's dr scott mm. who is incredibly ineffectual and just as corruptible as anybody yeah so we do have that lampooning of authority, mm. I think. And I think ultimately, again, Sprecher is incredibly subversive, and I think it's doing it in a very different way and yeah. looking at it from a different social angle. Yeah, they're, we've said plenty of times, Frank is the villain. He, he commits yeah. horrendous atrocities over the course of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but we still love him because mm. he's such a confident, interesting guy, and he gets what he wants. Uh especially you know in terms of his sexuality in terms of his expression he's he's one of those rare characters who commits cannibalism and we love him anyway how many other figures can you say that about in in fiction how many cannibals do you really love some people love hannibal i guess so yeah but um it's probably about it yeah hannibal dr frankenfurter those are probably the only two those are the only ones yeah i could think of anyway zombies don't count no, that's not really cannibalism at that point. You're a no, zombies kind of a monster. Yeah, yeah you're they're, they're not thing. they're not yeah, really human anymore. Yeah, no, I think it's yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, give or take. <laughs> yeah. Let us know what cannibals so, you like. <laughs> write in your favorite movie cannibals. Yeah, the ones you want to hang out with. <laughs> yeah, um, but but so even though he's he's hmm. in the role of the villain, uh, in many ways he is seen or at least celebrated as hmm. the hero of Rocky Horror. Yeah, no, it's true, and it, yeah. and also of course aesthetically, although Rocky Horror isn't really an expressionistic film, hmm. um, its characters garb themselves very expressionistically and they carry mm. themselves very expressionistically yeah, riffraff they're, they're, would step steps right out of a of a just german expressionist film yeah they're they're yeah. all very representational and it, it is mm. it is style but i think there's also a comment being made yeah sure um so again caligari <laughs> yeah sure just dismiss me <laughs> no I, I have nothing to add <laughs> okay, to that all right yes okay thank you you're right thank you you said yeah sure yeah okay Sure. <laughs> Caligari is actually a difficult film to talk about in some ways because it's it's very canonized. Yeah. It's uh, considered one of the most important and influential films, and it is. When we talk about its influence on Rocky Horror, we can be a little specific, but it's often just a very general influence on how horror is treated and portrayed in um, cinema. Yeah. Um, you could probably draw at least some meaningful connection between Caligari and most of the horror films that followed it, at least on some level, you you mm. could, let me put it this way. If you need to do like a comparative analysis term paper, if you pick Caligari and almost any horror film, you've 
probably got a good thesis. <laughs> You've probably got yeah. a decent thesis. So, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to read that. There's a lot going on in Caligari yeah. in terms of its influences, in terms of its style, in terms of its genre, yeah, uh, and and in terms of its place in uh, not just film history but political history. Yeah. So yeah, the, and we're just scratching the surface with some of these observations. No, there, and, and, and we're covering a yeah. wide range of topics here. Yeah, and again, and again, you know, this isn't specifically our field is German mm. cinema. So please seek out um, other film critics, other other works if you're more interested in Caligari and other films of the era. We we'd love to highlight more, but you know, we haven't written books on the subject and there are a lot of people who have who can be way more informative than we are. We're giving you a broad overview. Um so uh, that is it for episode 0 this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We will be back next week with Hey Whitney. Yes. Should I go slower pussycat kill kill? No, I think you should go faster pussycat kill kill we're going to be talking about a film which has by none other than the great john waters been called literally the best movie ever made he didn't just say that he didn't say it was merely that it was the best movie ever made he said it was the best movie that could ever be made (laughs) and um i'm not gonna fight him too hard on that faster (laughs) pussycat kill kill is amazing uh and if you haven't seen it boy are you in for a treat And we're going to be talking about that next week on Rocky Horror Episode Zero. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, We are, uh, let's see, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, uh, You can email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this show or anything else just in general, open Mm. book. Uh, And, of course, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, where we produce a lot of exclusive shows, including shows about uh, stuff Disney doesn't want to talk about. Uh, Every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, every single episode of the 1960s Batman TV series, every single Star Trek ever made. We got them all. Uh, Well, we're working on it. Um, And commentary tracks and more. Lots of exclusive stuff over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons without whom we would not be here. And we are incredibly grateful to you. Thank and you so much just for, for following and for listening. And for those of you who, who can't afford to be a patron, totally respectable. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. If you want to go a little above and beyond, you can totally uh, leave us a review wherever you find us, Apple Podcasts, wherever. Um, that helps us find more listeners. That would be nice, too. Um, But in general, just thank you for being you. Thank you for uh, joining us on this journey through the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And I see you quiver with... One of these days I'll deliver that well. I just don't ever... (laughs) Say it the way Frank does. I see you quiver. Well, it's it's shiver. I always want to say quiver. I see you shiver with anticipation.